We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We pick it up in verse 17 today. So would you read along with me, please? Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. In the part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's supper? I'm sorry, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also received delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, so often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let each man examine himself. And so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak, sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, well then let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I praise you so much for the opportunity tonight to open your word and let you teach us. I praise you, Lord, that you seek tonight to interface with every one of us. So speak fluent us tonight, regardless of what our original language was or is, regardless, Lord, of our cultures, regardless, Lord, of all of the things in life that could keep us distracted, overcome every one of them and let your word burst open and come alive for each of us in such a way that we would be overwhelmed in your goodness. Lord, that we would just be so captivated in you and that we would have so much fun in your word right now, Lord, that we would grow, that we would be challenged and exhorted and comforted and equipped for every good work. 
Lord, we have come here not just to take, but Lord, then to take what you give and then hand to others. Lord, we have come for your deployment tonight. So teach us. Equip us for what you've ordained for each of us. Fill me, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that you would appear. That you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And that each one of us will be personally spoken to tonight. Oh, Lord God, please, let this be your time. Redeem every second we commit it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's a reminder for you to check your phone. That's tenacious. Everyone, look over there. (laughs) What lovely stained glass, isn't it? Five years prior to this point, a traveling evangelist church planner named Paul, originally Saul of Tarshish, had gone into Corinth for the first time, spent a year and a half and planted a church there. It is the hub of all things immoral. Matter of fact, to be called a Corinthian would be to be hinting that the person had no moral stature whatsoever. And Paul spent a year and a half there teaching and equipping. God had told him to fear not or to literally stop fearing, which tells you a little about where he was. He says, there's many people placed in that town. I've got you covered. Don't worry. I'm with you, Paul. And that's really the only thing we ever need. As much as God could spend a lot of time developing our circumstances, he simply puts us in regards to our position. He knows where we stand, and that's with him. And with that then, (coughs) Paul then retreats to head over from there then into planning other churches and checking up on other churches, and then five years later will find himself in Ephesus for three years teaching at the school of Tyrannus. And it is there that he gets a letter from the Corinthian church he had planted just a half a decade prior. It appears to have been brought by Stephanus, Achaicus, and Fortunatus, three of the guys from the church there, and the first half of it is in, in essence symptoms of an unhealthy church. Paul, things are really rough. The church isn't the way it was five years ago. There are divisions, there's envy and strife, people are suing each other, They're bragging about their sexual promiscuity and their tolerance to alternative lifestyles. In this case, a man having his mother. And they're proud of it. And that becomes the first half of this letter. Paul has a very simple diagnosis for this church. You're carnal. Somewhere down the line, and please understand something. I don't know if I've said it yet, but let me make sure I have. Please don't just believe me. Never just assume what I say is true. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Somewhere down the line, the moment that you gave your life to Jesus Christ, and that's where this all starts. We all start out as sinners. We are children of wrath by nature. We are not children of God. We're not all joining hands, singing the Coke theme song or something, and all feeling some form of sense of kumbaya. The truth is we are children of destruction. That's what we were. And if you read it in in Ephesians chapter 2, 
What you realize is that we were dead and yet walking. So we were zombies. Walking according to the prince of power of the air, the prince, the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we're by nature children of wrath. That's what we were all together. So we all do have that in common. We all have sin, hell, destruction in common. But somebody loved you enough to preach the gospel to you, which Paul made clear to Romans is the power of salvation to those who would believe. Now, if you've never had anyone tell you what the gospel is, now let me be the first. Because you are a sinner, that sin must be paid for. God so loved you, he sent Jesus to pay the price in your stead, who died on the cross according to Scripture, just like the Bible promised, so that your sin could be fully punished, your guilt could be fully vanquished, and then died on the cross, buried, and then three days later, just as Scripture promised, was rose again. And now offers you a brand new life. You lay down the old life. You say yes to Jesus as your Savior. That pays for that. But then say yes to Jesus as your Lord. And that testifies in regards to the empty tomb. And the point is clear. That we lay down who we were to pick up who we are now in Christ. Which, by the way, the Bible makes clear is a new creation. That's who we are now. And praise God, we are a new creation. The problem is... We are God's new creation, not our new creation. And that's entirely different. You might say, I'd love to get rid of these things because I'm really not fond of my anger or my jealousy or my lust or my selfishness or my pride or whatever. Maybe I don't irritate people. I want to get rid of that. Or maybe I'm not the most likable guy or whatever. You want to get rid of that. But see, Jesus isn't into remodeling your life. He wants to reinvent you completely. And to reinvent you means that everything gets changed. And the first thing that happens, according to Ephesians 1.13, having believed, and that's what happens here. Believe simply means to put your trust upon this fact that Jesus did this. <laughs> having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the guarantee of your inheritance. And I do love that. It's the seal. And the Ephesians understood that. They were a port town. If, for instance, Deborah went somewhere, she was in Roma, and she went and bought something, but she didn't want to go and take it back with herself because it was too heavy for the airline. She could then take that signet ring, seal the wax on it, that's the seal, and then go back to Ephesus, and then it would go on boat. As it arrived in Ephesus, all she had to do was show her signet, that was the seal, and show that it was marked that way, and it was hers. She could claim it, she could redeem it. And that's exactly what it says in Ephesians. Paul knows how to address the Ephesians. That's what they understood. And he says, that's what happened to you. The moment you said yes to Jesus, God took his Holy Spirit and he went, and from that point on, Hugo was marked. From the moment you said yes to Jesus, you are marked. Until that day you show up on heaven's shore, and God says, that one's mine. You can see the seals all over him. Does that make sense? But here's the interesting part. The moment you say yes to Jesus and God puts his Holy Spirit inside of you, that Holy Spirit starts to change you and make you, hear me, hear me, hear me, different from the rest of the world. Now, we wanted to be better, but better like them. Not just different. But understand, if we were all dead before, you are the only living thing in the morgue. You are going to be different. You are the breathing thing. You are the thing with the pulse. You are the thing with the temperature. That's different. You are the one thing not decomposing. Not rotting. The problem is that the moment we give our life to Christ and God does start setting us off, the first little bit of it, that kind of honeymoon period, if you will, that I, by the way, I'm still on 29 years later. But uh, I just want you to know, you get this point where you're just like, yes, go ahead and change that. And I want, okay, I don't want to drink anymore. And I don't want to run out and have sex with everyone. Yeah, you know, I feel different. And you feel good about that. You feel good about the fact you say no to stuff you wanted to say no to. 
But then someone looks and goes, what happened to you, Mariana? You used to be fun. You're weird now. And now all of a sudden you realize different is weird in the sight of other people. And then what happens is that part of it is because of this desire to be accepted, if our eyes aren't on Christ, where we know we're accepted by the one who knows us perfectly, and we turn them back onto the world, we fight the Holy Spirit for the rest of our lives. Because the Holy Spirit's constantly trying to make us different, and we're constantly trying to make ourselves normal in the sight of the world. Now think about that. That means the Holy Spirit's putting on the parachute as the plane's going down, and you're taking it off because nobody else is wearing one. That means as you're on the Titanic, you're the one with floaties, and everybody else doesn't have them, and you feel kind of weird about it. You're like, but no, but kids will make fun of me. Those kids will stop soon because the, the making fun sounds like and ends. Here's the point. You need to understand that what happened in Corinth happens in every one of our hearts if we're not careful. And that is once Paul left this full-on, crazy, lambastic, pedal-to-the-metal evangelist, once he left, the church started looking around and saying, you know, we really are weird. But they didn't say, viva la weirdness. They said was, uh-oh. So there they are in Amsterdam. There they are in Vegas. And they're going, we really look too weird. So how do we get back to, I mean, and do you ever do that? Where you're like, Lord, in the beginning you're like, Lord, everything, take all of me. And I'm singing that completely. And now you're kind of like, Lord, how much can I do where I'm still like cool to the world and okay with you? And the Lord's like, you can't serve both masters. And you start reading these texts in James. And James is like, you open up the book and it's like this little hand comes up and goes, bam, it hits you in the face. And you're like, whoa, turn the page. Bam, and you hit the face. That's the book of James. He's like, friendship with the world is enemy of God. Bam, you hit the face. You know, and then you get to First John and it's like, don't love the world because if anyone loves the world, the love of God is not in them. Bam, and you hit the face again. You go, whoa, this isn't like I can do this. I can't play this game anymore. See, either I'm going to be, listen, listen, either I'm going to be cool now or I'm going to be cool eternally. Because if you want to be cool now, you could be hot forever, but you don't want to be that. I would rather be the one guy that stands out on the beach because he wears a red shirt. Now, why does he wear a red shirt? Not because red's cool, especially on the beach, because everybody else where I came from and the beach where I came from, you could tell everybody that was German, with all due respect, because they were the ones that were red. They were very fair-skinned when they came out there. They were in the sun too long, and they were as bright red as the shirt. But other than that, the only guy that wore a red shirt was the lifeguard. Now, they picked that color on purpose. Because when you're in the water, you don't want to look and go, now, which exactly plaid shirt is the lifeguard's? You want to find the guy quickly, right? And Because the guy's there to help you. When you need a policeman, you don't, I mean, you don't want somebody that looks so much like everybody else, you can't find them. When you need a doctor, it's the guy with the long white coat for a reason. And all those things are temporary. And here we are, toting eternal cure. And we want to look like everyone else. We want to dress like zombies, be like zombies. And I'm not talking about don't be fashionable. But you know what it means to just say, you know what, I just want to be cool with the world. But we know in our hearts we betray Christ to do that. I would rather be hot for Christ than cool in the world any day. We wrote a song once called Loser. And the whole idea of the song was, is that because, you know, as you become a Christian, people are like, you, you're such a loser. And I'm like, yes, 
I lost my sin and my death and my shame and my hell. And it's like, I, I want to be a loser because I'd rather be a loser than to be the one who's lost. And the whole idea of it's to be on fire for Jesus than to be lukewarm and cool. And that sticks in my heart. This church was cool with Corinth, but it was failing grades for Christ because they had gotten carnal. And so Paul says, that's your problem. This division thing, it's carnal. And it's not just, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. That's just where it begins. So I'm a Calvary Chapel. And then it's like, well, but are you a Calvary Chapel east side or west side? Are you a Calvary Chapel, you know, California? Are you a Calvary Chapel? Are you from original Calvary Chapel in America? Or are you Cal- it doesn't matter. And then it becomes, well, let's get all the black Christians on one side and all the white Christians on the other. Let's get all the old Christians on one side and all the young Christians on the other. Let's get, why? Because when I came to Christ, this miserable, rotten jerk got saved and transformed and became a new creation. And dare I say it? When you came to Christ, that miserable, rotten wretch got saved and became a wonderful new creation too. So all new creations, come on in. Have a seat. And if you've yet to accept Christ, you'll have an opportunity before this is done. Chapters 7 through the rest of the book are questions that Paul answers. It says now concerning the things you considering the things that you wrote to me. Concerning the things you wrote to me. So you got like, well, they're like, well, okay, if the Lord's coming back, is it okay to marry? What about meat sacrifice to idols? How do we really give? How do we not give? What about communion? What really happens there? And that's what Paul's addressing. So understand in these verses, he's addressing what we know of as communion, which now we know is a rite or a ritual. But Paul was saying that this thing has become a real mess. The church in Corinth was a real mess. And the reason was, is it allowed the world now to steer it instead of Christ to govern it. In the first verse, if you remember back in the beginning of chapter 11, he'll say this actually in verse 2. He says, Now I praise you, brothers, that you remember me in all things and keep their traditions just as I delivered them to you. So the first half of this is it's sort of good news, bad news. Up to verse 16, there's your good news. Now here's your bad news. Now this I don't praise you in. In other words, now this you need to change. And what is it? When you come together, it's for the worse. In other words, your church meetings are actually doing more damage than good. Could you imagine? Well, part of it, to be honest, is to ask you, and this is what I want to ask, why in the world do we come in the first place? Why do we come to church? Do we do it because, isn't that what Christians do? We're supposed to come to church and sit and listen to some guy talk, maybe tithe a little bit and walk out? Hey, here, you know, maybe you get a little tea on your way out? Or is there more? Please understand When you gave your life to Christ, when I gave my life to Christ, we became more than just alive. We became a part of the body. Someone here is a spleen. Someone here is a liver. Someone here is a hand. Someone here is a foot. Someone here is an eye. How do you know what your part is? Well, you get to be part of the body and you watch what happens. You see, this is the place where we fall in love with Jesus and then try things on each other. We're so in love with Jesus, we just want to try. Can I pray for you? What's going on? We become family. And as we become family, we invest. How do you know who the teachers are? 
Do you know that I didn't go to school to become a pastor? Not that I'm against that by any means. We actually had our own Bible college, so I can't say that we're against it. I fell in love with Jesus one day when I opened up his book for the first time. I moved to California. I opened up that Bible for the first time. Someone said, that book you carry, why don't you try reading it? I had been a Christian for about three years. I had never seen a Bible open. I had led worship the entire time, was on a first-name basis with every pastor. I had never seen a Bible open. I'd been to all kinds of Bible studies, never saw a Bible open. Funny what you could call a Bible study when there's no Bible you're studying. One, we watched a lot of movies. Even there, I was kind of like, how exactly? Anyways. But the moment I opened up this book, I fell in love with the author. I got to chapter 2 of Genesis, so don't tell me this is a New Testament experience. And as I fell in love with him, I couldn't stop talking about him. Now, for you, that's not that weird. For me, it was very weird because I was very quiet and very, dif- very distant from people. I know it's probably hard to, to believe today, and that's okay. I didn't, want, I didn't want anything to do with people. And then I fell in love with God, and then I fell in love with you. And then what happened is as I started reading the Bible, I just couldn't stop sharing with people. See, this was the first time for me. Gideon, I'd never read that before in my life. Never heard of the guy. Okay, now you hear a little bit about him, right? He's the guy with the big boat and the animals. You're okay, that's what you know, right? Adam and Eve, you kind of get those guys. <coughs> but a lot of these guys that were so... And of course, you still don't know the depth and the gravity of these wonderful people. And as you walk through them and you're like, Enoch, what the heck is that? Walking and zoop, he's gone. Until I got to the New Testament and realized that God's going to rapture his own. And I go, oh, he was giving us a precursor for that, wasn't he? He was preparing us. And as I started sharing with people, I thought it would drive them away. My friends all started getting saved. And then they were like, hey, so um, could we all meet on a Thursday evening and just listen to whatever the Lord's sharing with you? That was my first Bible study. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. The only thing I can tell you in my favor is I did not know what I was doing, and I knew it. So I opened up and said, well, I should probably teach through a book. How about Job? That was the first book I ever taught to. Could you imagine? And I was like, okay, what we can learn from this is get better friends. It's kind of the theme. But here's the point. Is that when you fall in love with Jesus, you find yourself doing what he's called you to. But if I had just walked around, you know what? You try to walk around and try to share because you're all lit up on Christ and you want to teach. And you're not, you're not like, I want to teach someone. It's falling out of your mouth. You irritate people who don't want to learn. And you're an evangelist and you want to share Jesus with people. And it's like, let's face it, you need to be where the lost are. And then you need to come in and realize that everybody gets hammered for their faith and thinks that pe- people say you're stupid for your faith. You need the body for that. But when a group like this falls in love with Jesus, who better to try things on than people who you know have to forgive you. So you're like, you know what? I just Can I just share with you what I think the Lord's showing me? I mean, let's face it. We're so afraid. Why? Shouldn't this be the safe place? I mean, could you imagine what would happen if the Lord raised up a prophet? Now, I'm not talking about some guy who just threw on a robe and walked around eating bugs. But I mean, somebody that actually called the church to repent says, you know, I just really believe that the Lord has put this message on my heart. It's a word of prophecy. And, you, and it's like, you know, there's got to be a place where you can actually try that. And the Bible tells us to test all things. We're actually called to do that. Does that make sense? 
And if we really do church the way God called us to do church, we could not be herded in and herded out. We have that back in California. It had gotten to the place where you herd in hundreds of people at a time. Four services, one on Saturday, three on Sunday morning, and then one on Sunday night. And it's like you just never get to know anyone anymore. And everyone kind of comes in. They do their thing. like It's like the new Christian thing. It's like the Christian movie, only it's live. And then you leave, and that was it. (laughs) And then it's like you don't even change. It's like, is that really what we want? Where do we do this? Where, and it's like, understand, here, the Corinthian church was trying to do this. And what they were doing is they were trying to eat. Which, by the way, I'm a big fan of. Which you're probably aware of. When our church first started here, we would meet in our home. Because after all, people already think Calvary's a cult. What do we have to lose? And so, um, we, when we met at our house, we did the same Bible study. We did the same you know, time of praise. And of course, traditionally, our next-door neighbor would freak out and get angry. And then we'd have soup, for whatever reason. It just evolved into soup. And we had soup together. <laughs> it was just a cool time where it's like, come and break soup with us. But understand, when it came to communion, we separated that. And we made sure that there was time given when we really did inventory. We wanted to come to the table of the Lord seriously. Jesus never called it the Last Supper. He called it the Lord's Supper. And that's what Paul calls it here. But please understand, the thing had kind of melded. And you know how things get sloppy in time? And as they got sloppy in time, basically it just became that the church got together and then they ate and they drank. And communion was sort of part of that, or so they thought. But really what it was, because the church had gotten so carnal, and let me just make clear what carnal is. Carnal is just me first. That's all carnal is, me first. And we come here and we fall in love with God, and it's not just, you know, you first, God. It's actually me last. That's the thing we learned. And the moment it becomes me last, you will benefit from that. And so what happens is these people were getting together, and we would all show up hungry. So it's like, all right, service tonight's at P's house. You better be making jerk chicken, bruv. And, you know, and so we, and it's like, and what happens is, you know, it's like, we can, we're like waiting for P to stop talking so that we, you know, and we're like, our mouths are watering. I've got a fork in my hand and a pen in the other just to make it look like I'm studying. And he's like, amen. And I'm in the front of the line waiting to just scoop up the food. And that was what was happening there. And we were calling that communion. And what happened is a new guy shows up and he's hungry. And he's homeless. And we have food for him. But oh, you know what he gets? He gets eight kernels of eight grains of rice and a little bit of the goop that's left over at the bottom of the pan. But I'm happy because I'm fat and full. And he goes, exactly, what were you communing with there? How is that something I can applaud you on? He goes, you know what happened? We stopped really considering why we even do what we do. You just get caught in doing it. Why do we sing songs beforehand? Do you know what's weird? Is church is not supposed to be the, the hospital. The Lord is supposed to be your hospital. People go, well, if I can go to get church, I can get fixed. You're supposed to go to the Lord to get fixed. We're supposed to enter his courts and his gates with thanksgiving and praise. You realize what that means? But isn't it natural for us? It's like, I'm going to show up frumpy and angry. And like the first couple of songs, if you even make it that early, you're like, okay. by the third song, you're kind of in it. By the fifth song, you're like, all right, cool, I'm back in it. And then it stops. You're like, hey, I was just getting into it. 
Because we came in all frumpy and nasty and prickly and yucky. And then what happened is we expected the church to do all of that. But when you went to temple, that was not the way it played. You got right with the Lord first. And then you went and did this whole mikvah thing where you immersed yourself in water to just kind of remind yourself physically, this is what's supposed to have happened to me internally. And then you showed up ready to praise. Could you imagine? I mean, people were like, I was glad when we said, let us go to the house of the Lord. That's what was happening. And I see that with you guys, by the way. But I want to warn you, a year from now, we'll either be more in that or we'll get sloppy like these guys did. And all we have to do is stop wanting to be on fire and start wanting to be cool. Does that make sense? So look at the text with me, because the way he puts it is so beautiful, but it's also so darn convicting. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, for worse, first of all, when you come together as a church. Notice that. So this is an official church function. This wasn't just like, hey, everybody over to my house for chicken. This is an official church communion function. I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Now, this word for division is a word that many of us might be familiar with. You know, Greek word. And the word is schisma, like schism. We use the word today... One of the words, for instance, for brain in the Greek is the word phren. And if you had a torn, because the word schisma means literally to tear, if you had a torn brain, you would be called a schizophren. And that's where we get schizophrenic from. So schisms, and understand the difference of this, because there's going to be a couple of words here. The idea of this kind of division is literally two things that belong together that were torn apart. That's not a good thing. A schizophren is not a good thing to have. I mean, when was the last time you thought, torn, that's such a great thing. I can't wait to tear. Now, maybe you've got one, maybe you want cammed in and you want to tear your jeans, but normally tear is not a good thing. When we originally did covenants, we did not do them with cups. We did them with, with our tractors, our oxen. And what we did is we halved the animal. And we put half of it on one side, half on the other, and this valley of blood in between. And we walked through that valley together. You see that, by the way, in Genesis 15. And as we walk through it, the idea of it is, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, let this happen to me. And that's exactly what God says in regards to marriage. When he says, what God has brought together, let no man tear apart. Do you get it? What would happen if couples walked through that and said, if we actually decide to go back on this commitment, this is what's going to happen to us. Because it is what happens. And that's the word he has here. And he says, that's what's happening in your church. Is it's being torn. The problem with tearing is, things don't tear themselves. Other things tear them. Did you notice that? You don't watch something and it just sits there and starts to tear itself. Within the church, there will be terrors, and you want to be aware of them. The Bible makes really clear, hey, when God talks about divisive people, he pulls no punches. He says there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. A haughty look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, and a brother that sows discord among brethren. 
In 1 Timothy, Paul speaks to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, and he talks about the person, or in 2 Timothy 3, about a person that is a brother that is taken captive to do the will of the enemy, and the will of the enemy is to divide people, to tear them apart. And in a carnal world, that's very easy, because you're being sized up. And he goes, Paul's writing, he's like, you know, you guys, I planted this church five years ago, but look at you now. I hear you guys are being torn apart. And to be honest, I believe it. And then he says this, for there must also be factions among you. Do you see that there in verse 19? Now that's a different word altogether. Literally, that's the word heresy. Heresies. There must be heresies among you so you can see who is approved and who isn't. But that difference is, this is not somebody being torn these are walls that are being divided and say, oh, wait a minute, this person clearly is not where they need to be. And not for the person that's disapproved to be made clear, but to be honest, for those that are approved to be made clear is what he says. Therefore, since there should be a right separation of those that are fully on and full on for him, but there should not be a tearing apart of believers. Therefore, when you come together in one place, yeah, unfortunately, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating it, one takes his own supper ahead of others. You know what that is? That's me first. How do we approach the table of the Lord with a me first attitude? That's the problem here. As a result, one is hungry and another one gets drunk. Which tells you that the me first lived in excess. Me first, my feast. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Notice he says, do you despise the church? To come into church as a Christian. Now, I'm not saying if you've not accepted Jesus Christ, I expect you to be me first. But if you've come to Christ and you want to be more like him, you cannot be me first and become more like Christ. You know what he calls that? Despising the church. <laughs> Do you despise the church and shame those who have nothing? If it was me last and I saw somebody come in, a person in need would be an opportunity, not an obligation. Does that make sense? What, shall I praise you in this? I don't praise you in this. I'll tell you why. Because I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. That, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, on the same night that he was betrayed, he took bread. Now stop. Look at verse 23 closely. Look at the setting. It was the night that Jesus was what? Betrayed. This wasn't just the night that Jesus taught us a new rite or ritual. This wasn't just the night of Passover. This was the night of the universe's greatest treason. This was the night where the entire creation of man backstabbed God. It was the night of Christ's biggest heartbreak. And that's the night. And what's, what's the first thing it tells us he did? Look at verse 24. He gave thanks. Could you imagine giving thanks at a moment like this? knowing everyone's going to betray you, knowing you're going to get stabbed in the back, though the one, your familiar friend in whom you trusted lifted up his heel against you, would betray you with a kiss? What exactly do we think we have a right to be selfish over? Because someone's hurt us? Because someone has performed that? And let me ask, honestly, and forgive me if this is necessary, but live it out for a moment here. Can you remember, even of any time recent, any moment where you would say this was a moment of great betrayal. Can you think of any? 
somebody you loved and all you did was love and soaked your love into, invested, and selflessly served. And to see that same person flip on you and only want your destruction. That same person you loved and held and carried in your bosom now became your enemy at their choice. Can you think of anything like that? Can you, I mean, do you know the pain of that kind of moment? Where you're flabbergasted because you have no words to say. Because you're like, how is this even possible? You, where you don't even see it coming. And you stare in the face of someone who now has decided to become your enemy. That you, five breaths before, you couldn't have imagined that. And you've given them no reason. You've given them every reason not to. Now multiply that by seven billion, the population of our world. Hey, one sends you to the showers. One puts you on the bench. One causes you to force a brave face and keeps you on your knees to, to seek the strength of the Lord for the sake of everyone else. But I can't fathom ten. Twelve. That would all forsake Jesus and flee that night. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It had been prophesied in Zechariah. But this was the night that Jesus gave up everything was the night that he knew was his greatest betrayal. And here's the point, beloved, and please understand, this isn't just for you, this is for me too. How can I go to the table of the Lord selfish? Me first. And think somehow I have a right to do that. When the Savior of mankind knew everyone that night would betray him, the people who would punch his face and mock him and spit on him. Those to know that Peter would deny that he knew him three times and even to the point of saying, if I really do know him, may I go to hell. That's what anathema means. That he would wash Judas' feet and then he would break this bread. How do I go to that table full of selfishness, full of me first carnality, when that was what the table was for? I don't know how I could do it. But on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, Take this, eat this, this is my body, it's broken for you. And he says, When you do this, Please remember me. That's the point here. If I don't remember this, the table means nothing. I close my eyes, someone sticks a wafer on my tongue and I walk out, I've done my duty. But am I remembering him? I'm not just, oh yeah, Jesus, the one who carries sheep on his shoulders. No, the one who took a nail and was praying for the one who was nailing it to forgive him. The one who would hang while people mocked him while he hung naked and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
What could I possibly entertain in my heart? What bitterness, what anger, what resentment could I ever possibly entertain in my heart and say, how dare you? How could you do that? Don't you know who I am when Jesus said, could have said that and more? And he didn't, and he still gave it all up. It should be the most humbling possible place on earth, the table of the Lord. And I come to that table broken because he was broken for me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. How can I look at that cup? And let's say it was full of wine. How can I look at that cup where in utter and complete sobriety of purpose, Jesus fixed his gaze upon me to die and think, selfishly, I'm going to get wasted. I'm going to take that same cup where Jesus bled and fill my heart with drunkenness? How do I do that? Do you know how? Because I get sloppy and I forget that I do stuff for a purpose. Any relationship gets stale if you get sloppy. You know what I'm saying? There needs to be a freshness in our relationships or they will get stale. They look lovely because they're good routines. They're just not as meaningful. Do you know what the result was? Notice in verse 26, this is as, long, as, as often as you eat and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We, whether we know it or not, we're proclaiming Jesus died for us. But how could I say, Jesus, you died for me, but I'm going to live for me instead. That was the epitome of you first, isn't it? Therefore, whoever drinks this bread, this, uh, eats this bread and drinks this cup in an unworthy, anaxios, it literally means irreverent or unfit manner, will be guilty of the body. And it's like, you know what? You're guilty of killing him. So examine yourself. I do love this word. It's one of my favorite Greek words here. The word for examine is the word dokimatso. Would you say dokimatso? Now, the word is more than just a verb. It's a position. Dokimas actually was a person as well. See, because we had different kinds of currency, but we had the same kind of materials, gold and silver. They were universally expensive. So what would happen is, let's say I came from Syrophoenicia and I was trying to come into Jerusalem and spend money, and there was Hugo trying to take my money in his music store. Well, it wouldn't matter what picture I had on it, what framework or any of that. What matter would that be? What he would do is he would weigh it out. Now, <laughs> I could have on there and I could say one pound on it, but if the coin was one-sided, I could shave off the bottom of it. And often what people would do is if they could, they would cut it in half, shave off the middle, and put it back together like a sandwich. And what they could do then, ultimately, is they could take coins, and then they could actually make coins worth half of what their actual worth was, but the surface looked the right. Does that make sense? Like it would look and say one pound, but it really was only worth a half a pound. So there are those that would simply look and go, that's a pound. And we know that because there are counterfeiters today. They'll, build, they'll make these bills and they look the same, but they're not. So there are those that would just take it and listen, listen. They'll take it on face value. But then there are others that would be bright and Hugo would be one of those guys and he would have a scale. 
with tried weights. Traditionally, you get the idea a pound was worth a pound. I think it was silver was originally the idea. And so what would happen is he would take a pound and put it on one side, and he would take the coin and put it on the other, and they should even out. Does that make sense? In other words, he's not taking it at face value. He sees if it weighs out true by its true weight. That's the word that's used, by the way, when we're told to test all things, to test all prophecies. Don't take them, in other words, at face value. Weigh them out by what you know is tried and true, which clearly is the word of God. Does that make sense? It's the, it's the true weight. I know it never changes. I put the Bible on one side and I try something on the other. And someone's like, we all need to get drunk in the spirit and let's all barf and get crazy and let's build a drunk tank on the side so we can sober up before we go home. And I put the Bible on the other side and I go, ooh, that does not weigh out. I don't get it. And that's the word that's here. But this time, the interesting thing is we're supposed to do that to ourselves. In other words, don't take yourself at face value. You can go, well, I'm doing the right things. I'm reading, I'm praying. That's like saying, you know what? Well, I'm, I'm with my wife a little bit here and there. I give her a good night kiss and we pray together. We do the routine. But is there passion in the relationship? Is there a fire in the relationship? Is it growing? Or is it cooling? Are we just cool? We're just cool. I don't want to be just cool with Christ. I want to be a fire. Jesus was never just cool with me. He was never just like, never mind, well, let's just coast for a little while. He's been in hot pursuit for me ever since. And understand, here's the thing. The table of the Lord, all it is is just to create an event so that we could do this regularly. But what if we did this every day? You know, I remember telling my wife, when I say I do at the altar, what I am saying is I do agree to say I do every day for the rest of my life. I'm not just saying, well, I said I did. Because every day you wake up and decide whether you want to live married or not. Or just coincidentally live. And I don't want to coincidentally live with Christ. We're almost done. So let each man examine himself. And then let him eat the bread and drink the cup. Now notice he doesn't say, so if you don't think you're cool about it, don't eat the cup or don't drink the cup and eat the bread. He says, examine yourself. You should want to go to the table of the Lord. You should want that. Don't just disqualify yourself and say, well, never mind, I just won't go then. He says, no. Look, at examine yourself, get it right, and then go to the table. For he who drinks and eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, <coughs> excuse me, that's that same word, anoxious, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Condemnation, not discerning the Lord's body. Literally, not separating thoroughly the Lord's body. Diacrino. For this reason... Many of you are weak, feeble, impotent, without strength. Many of you are sick, sickly. Some even sleep. Many even sleep. What is that? That's God's judgment. It's like, you want to play around at my table? I must be viewed as holy. You know, if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't judge. We wouldn't have to be judged. God's like, I'd really like you to take inventory so I don't have to. When we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord. And understand, when God chastens us, it's because he loves us. That we may not be condemned with the world. In other words, God is, did you notice again, separating us from the world by doing this? 
Here we are trying to crawl into the bed with the world, trying to get closer to the world, trying to look more and act more like the world, trying to be cool with the world. And God does something and he puts something and he chastises us in such a way to separate us from the world again, to make us different from the world. And then we're like, oh, I got to start all over again. The word chastened, by the way, for what it's worth, padyuho is the idea of training up a child, educating them. Therefore, brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. I mean, if you're going to eat together, in everything, let it be me last. In everything. If one's hungry, well, then let him eat at home. Nothing wrong with eating. When you come together, lest you come together for judgment. And the Russell said, in order when I come. Now let's close this up, but listen with me, please. This is rough. This is serious and this is hard for good reason. And here's the point. If I could just put an all-encompassing thing over this. God wants our relationship fresh. He doesn't want our prayers stale. He doesn't want our readings stale. Now, hey, there are some times where, you know, maybe you feel like you're reading and you're not getting it all. But you read because you know it's right. Maybe sometimes you're praying and you feel like it's bouncing off the ceiling. But you still pray. But that doesn't mean you can't pursue the Lord in a way that will make it fresh. Lord, speak to me in a fresh way. Now, that doesn't have to be anything new. Just set my heart ablaze for you. If there's anything interfering, show me what that is that I would gladly forsake it for you. Not just leave it. Leave it for you. There's a difference. Because what I want to gain is Christ and everything. And if that happened, then we came together with us last in our mind, we would want to serve each other. And that would be such an amazing thing. And here's the good news, beloved. I'm already seeing that happen. I'm watching you serve each other. I'm watching you pray for each other. And going, hey, you know what? Risk it. Risk it. I feel like, you know, I feel like I might have a word from the Lord. I, I trust that you'll test it. Because Pastor T said I should. You should. So here's the word. We won't pick up stones to stone you unless you call yourself a prophet. That's another story. But if you're like, I think I have a word from the Lord, well, then try it. You want to pray? Pray. Hey, if you've got nothing to lose, you're like, hey, that person has cancer and I think the Lord's telling me I should pray for them. They already have cancer. What could they, What do you got to lose? Go and pray for them. Pray in faith, all right? You know, I believe the Lord really wants me to pray for you. Well, then pray for them. What if they don't get well? You might just bless them with the fact that you were willing to pray for them. Do you realize that? What if they do get well? We've watched that. They won't if you don't, I think is the idea here. And God wants to give you the... Can you imagine having the testimony in your own heart to say, God did this through me? How awesome is that? <laughs> That's what you're robbing yourself of, is being a part of someone else's testimony and having a part of your own. Oh, but he wants to do that. But it starts with this. He wants us to so fall in love with him that we love him so much that we're willing to put ourselves last. Because everything else works out fine when we do, because we trust he's got it covered. When the table of the Lord comes, for those of you who will be coming to Passover, we are going to have the table of the Lord there because that is part of the Passover. We want to come seriously, soberly, taking inventory and saying, all right, Lord, is there anything? And that's why songs like Holy for You are written. See if there be any wicked way in me, because I want to be holy for you. That's what I want to be. That's the idea. So as we go to prayer, first of all, have you even accepted this gift of Jesus? Have you even accepted this gift of Christ on the cross, his death for your sins? 
If you haven't, I'm going to give you that choice to say yes. If you have, are we willing today to say, I do agree, to say, I do from this point forward? I surrender myself. And to surrender myself means all that's that's part of my camp and my heart and my mind. If I love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love my neighbor as myself, somehow all these things work their way out. So make me such a person. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you so much for the blessing of this time. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you've opened up your word to us today. I thank you, Lord, that that you have not condemned your people who have made such stupid mistakes, but rather you call them to repentance. (coughs) I thank you, Lord, that it's not your desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That you desire all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And Lord, I thank you that you've loved us and you've chased us and pursued us with hot passion to pursue us. With great vehemence. And Lord, even the most mild of us here can still have a fire in our heart for you. It may look different, perhaps, from those that are a bit more energetic. But we want to make sure that we're completely yours. We sang it, take all of me, all that I am. And I pray you would be working on our hearts. And just right now, Lord, I pray that if our relationship is stale with you, may that be so, dis- may that be so disconcerting to us, so concerning for us, that even right now we would cry, Lord, why? What needs to be done? And Lord, we trust you'll speak because you want us intimate with you. But Lord, while Christians right now are dealing with that and listening to your voice, if there be any in this room who have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, they've not taken Christ's payment for their own sins. Today they have that choice to say yes. To have all their guilt washed away in the blood of Christ and to become a new creation even as you promised. And if that's you in this room, I want to pray this prayer. I ask you to listen. And if you agree, I ask you to say at the end, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner, I confess. And you tell me that the wages of sin is death. But I believe you so loved me that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross in my place. And as he died on the cross in my place, all my guilt was punished. He was buried just like you promised. He was buried just as scripture promised. He rose again from the grave on the third day. And in doing so, he offers me a brand new life. Set free, sealed with your Holy Spirit. To be a brand new creation. And so I say yes. Yes to Jesus as my Savior. Yes to him as my Lord. I surrender myself to you now and ask, do with me as you wish. Reinvent me to your glory and use me as a blessing for others. I am yours now in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, in this room right now, I just pray right now for my brothers and sisters, myself, make our relationship with you fresh and hot. Lord, let our reading be for you. Keep us away from the it's for the you, Lord. 
We don't want to just read it. We want to pursue you in your word. We don't want to just claim it prayer. We want to seek you in prayer and make it a dialogue. We don't want to just come to church for it, for instruction or teaching or fellowship or whatever. But we come to fellowship with you and to be used by you to be a blessing to others. That's what we pray church would be. That's what we pray this church would be. Would be. So, Lord, if there be anything interfering with our relationship, bring it to our hearts and minds. As you speak our language, speak it so that we would hear. And then, Lord, lovingly, tenderly, but firmly eradicate it from us. Remove it. Exhume it and remove it so that, Lord, it's no longer an issue that our, that our walk with you would be everything you intend for it to be. As we surrender ourselves to you now, Lord, afresh and anew when we want to say, I do, all over again. Lord, you first, us last. Make it everything you ordained, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.